Hey everybody, this is the Running Rogue Podcast, episode number eight coming at you. I am Chris. I've got Steve here as always joining me. Hey Steve. Hello Chris. And then we have a special guest today who we'll introduce more in a second, Mr. James Dodds, who is a coach here with us at Rogue Running. Hello James. Hey guys, excited to be here. (laughs) Excited to have you. So James is joining us because uh, by the time this podcast will be released, we'll have finished our Austin Marathon Prep and Pump, which is going to be on February 3rd. By the time you hear this, it will have passed. But basically, we're going to spend most of today's episode giving you a strategy for the race that will include both how you think about the course from a pace perspective and also how you think about the course mentally as you go through it. So James and I will be tag teaming that and Steve will be jumping in here and there as we go. I would also recommend that you check out episode number five where we talked about marathon race planning on a more generic sense, where we cover some other things that you should be thinking about, like nutrition and gear and logistics and things like that. So I would I would take these two in tandem if you're planning to run the Austin Fuller Half, episodes five and this one, episode number eight. I will also say that for those that aren't running the Austin Half or Full, I think this is still a useful podcast for you, especially on the mental side, because we're going to give you some good tips that will help you generically as someone who might be preparing for any race and it'll also give you a sense if you're not racing Austin for how you might think about race strategy on a more challenging course so it also plays in a little bit to what Boston has for folks this is it is uh you know there's not the the big hill hills from 16 to 20 but um there is a lot of commonality between the way you might approach a race plan for Austin and Boston this is true so with that we're going to dive in by first talking about the Austin Marathon field. We've got some really stacked elite level competition for this year. Whereas in the years, in the last few years, there hasn't really been an elite program or, or, or um, prize money associated with this race. High Five Events has is now running the marathon and they've added an elite field back to it with prize money $2,000 to the top male and female marathoner, and then it goes five deep on the prize money with $10,000 total. So we've got some competition. So Steve and I have gotten the very latest as of today list of elites that are going to be showing up. So we were going to handicap it a little bit, give you a sense for who's going to be on the starting line, what to look out for if you're in Austin or if you're paying attention to these sorts of things. So we'll start with the women because ladies first, mm-hmm. right, Steve? And I think yep. this one may be a little bit more straightforward. We're biased. We have our local champion and Rogue Expeditions founder and, and Rogue extraordinaire, Allison Maxis, that leads the women's field for sure. She's got the best resume with the 239 PR in the marathon and a top 25 at the Olympic trials. So there's Allison Maxis. And then her primary competition most likely for this race is a woman by the name of Lauren Smith. Lauren Smith Stroud. Lauren Smith Stroud, that's right. She's married. Mm This will be her second marathon. Her marathon debut came at the Olympic trials in L.A. last year where she ran a 2.53 on a really warm day. She's also run a 1.14 half, but her experience primarily lies in the shorter distances. So you've got those two probably up front duking it out. And then some local... Favorites, so flavor. to speak, you yeah. know, with Desiree Ficker, 
who is a longtime Austin runner and Jazz Ficker Barry now. She yes. got married too. That's of course, right. on the women's fields, we've always got we've always got things that change Thanks there. Thanks for correcting <laughs> <Yeah>. me. Former <laughs> former second in Kona at the uh, at the World Championships for Ironman, and has also finished tenth in the New York Marathon as a Cap 10K winner for the local accolades. Then, of course, you have Chris Kembro, who's also a local runner and an elite level masters runner who is the former world record holder for the beer mile yep has formerly raced in the olympic trials for the marathon and she is a local fan favorite as well but those two probably will be back a little ways and then you have one other athlete to mention caitlin batten who's a seventh she's run the seventh fastest beer mile among the women and a 249 marathon so she's probably the the third that that might challenge Lauren and Allison, depending on where she is with fitness going into Austin. So with that, as our overview of the women's field, what do you think, Steve? I think uh, not to put any pressure on my horse, but um, I don't really mind putting pressure on my horses. So She can take it. Uh, Allison, I think, will win this um, going away. I think uh, I've, I've had the, uh, uh, the opportunity to watch Lauren Smith-Stroud run for many, many years, and... Uh, while she's an extremely talented runner and um, she also has an incredible ability to stick with it when she's in suffering spots. I've seen her, I mean, her result at the Olympic trials at 253, watching how she went out early on in that race and on a very hot day and still managed to get to the finish line. I was hugely impressed with that. Um, but she has a tendency to go out fast. Um, she just ran the Austin 3M half marathon. Um, she won that, but she beat Another athlete that I coach, Nora Colligan, by only about 20 seconds. And watching workouts between between um, Nora and Allison, I think Nora would be uh, willing to to dip her hat and say that Allison is in a pretty pretty a extraordinary shape at this point. Yeah. Um, so. You know, we had Allison on our, our podcast, so many people have heard about her. Um, this is a great opportunity for her to get a W, um, get a win in her to hometown, and pick up a little prize money. Um, I want to speak just real quickly to uh, the Austin Marathon, um, Jack and William and the crew, and all the, what they're doing with doing this elite field in this way, I think is incredibly admirable. Um, kudos to them. I'm super happy to see them. Number one, bring back some prize money. Number two, to not go fishing and go after a Kenyan or a Japanese runner. Not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but I've been very anti that when you've got a lot of local runners um, in the area and also people regionally from Louisiana, from Dallas area, from you know Arkansas, from other places who might be able to step it up and race. They need some incentive and put, putting some money in there and some time bonuses is a really smart thing for them. So uh, kudos to that crew for creating an interesting race, um, which I think over time will turn into fast races. Yeah. And they've also required all of these athletes. I think they have 22 elites total to take the run clean pledge that has been recently put out by the run clean collective. And so they're also doing it in a way that tries to promote integrity in the sport, which is also cool. But, but yes, Allison is the clear favorite. And she might not catch Lauren till mile 20. <laughs> but, but Lauren it, should go out it, in the lead. Because Lauren has a tendency <laughs> to go out fast. Um, she lived in Austin for a while. Allison yep. Scott coached her for a little bit. She was a part of uh, that so Cedar Park crew up there. Um, and so she knows Austin. And I'm sure she's run on many of the roads that, that the race will be on. But Allison's preparation on these, she, unfortunately, she'll tell you how many thousands of times she's had to run hard down Expo. So <laughs> I think uh, not only the experience, but also her current fitness puts uh, Miss Maxis in a, in a really good spot. Yep. 
And switching over to the men's field, it looks like we have a battle between a couple of different groups, a couple of guys that are more experienced marathoners that have decent marathon resumes. You've got Mario Macias, who's run about five years ago at 215. More recently, he's he ran a 226 in 2016 at Carlsbad. And then you have a guy named Brian Morseman, who has a 219 PR. And his story is an interesting one. He's definitely somebody to watch and, and read up on. He has he has been featured in Runner's World as a guy who's run three marathon won three marathons in eight days, running 224, then 232, 24 hours later, and then another 224 a week after that. So plus a little layup there with the 234 <laughs> though. Right, Come on, right? <laughs> plus he's run, he's won 43 out of 67 marathons that he's raced. Now part of that is his his cause. He's been going out to raise money. So he's looking for marathons that have prize money so he can raise money for his son who has spina bifida, which is a spinal cord or a spinal column defect, so that he can raise money for his son's medical bills. So he's got a really interesting story. He's been featured on this Today Show. And his overall marathon resume is probably the best in the field. And then and then you have those. So you have those two, Mario and Brian, against a trio of guys who've run 104 to 106 and a half that are debuting in the marathon distance. So it'll be interesting to see how they do. Mark Pinalis, who's a local favorite, former UT runner who just won 3M and has won all of the races in the Austin Distance Challenge so far. And then two out-of-towners, Ian Butler, who's run 105, who trains with Hudson, with Brad Hudson in, in Colorado, and then Isaiah Samoe, who's run a 106. So those guys are all debuting against the veterans, Mario and Brian. What do you think about this side of the field? It's always dangerous to vote to to give your tip the hat to a debut marathoner, um, <laughs> but I think in this case, given the fact that uh, I've I've had a chance to watch Mark do some of his work, I saw his 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 workout that he I mean the race that he ran at the Decker Challenge, which was in my opinion pretty impressive. Um, I know about ten to twelve days out, he's running a ten k down in Edinburgh at the Americas. All America's Greatest City or America's Greatest 10K race, which I think is a really smart move to put a hard 10K effort about that far out. So I think Marks has got as good a chance as anybody in terms of being the debut winner. Um, I think he'll have a lot of love in this town going for him. Um, and so I'll pick Mark, but I think Brian has a lot of things going for him. Um, it's a whole lot different when you're running for something significantly more than yourself. Um, and that's a hard thing to uh, that's a hard thing to to bet against. Yep. Um, a lot of a lot of reasons for him to want to run fast, and a lot of reasons for him to look at this more along the lines of a payday rather than and a business and a business trip rather than Mark might be looking at it as a as a sort of a stepping board to something future. I don't know enough about the other guys. You know, the Mario Macias. He looks like he's had uh, some fast times earlier in his career and has run well recently, but. Um, who knows exactly what position he's in? Um, so I think it, I'm I'm hoping it'll end up being a race, a duke it out race between Mark and Brian. And for me, I'm just gonna stay local and uh, and 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 pick Mark. I'm sure you'll you'll yeah, well, you'll, you'll you'll beg to differ, <laughs> but I'll, I'll go with the with the experience and the cause with Brian running. You know, he's run 67 marathons. He's got the experience. Plus, if you look at his courses, he's run. He's run a variety of ch you know courses, including challenging ones. And he's got the cause and his son to run for. So $2,000 would make a big difference. I'm sure related to medical bills in his life. So I'll pick Brian as the out-of-towner coming in to steal the show from Mark. But we will see. 
It's also worth mentioning that we've got a trio of former Austinites coming back to race that may put their head in there. You never know, depending on how their fitness is. Jared Carson, who just moved to Portland. Rio Reyna, who is also on the West Coast now. And Joe Thorne, former UT runner and, and rogue AC athlete, yeah. that will be coming back to race. So we've got three former beloved Austin runners coming back to race, which I think is cool. Yeah, really looking forward to tipping a few beers with them. I'm not sure we'll see him on the on the podium, but I'm happy to have a few beers with all three of those guys. Yeah, and for Jared, this is a bit of a redemption race. In 2013, he went out hard <laughs> in Austin to go in for the win. He, he ran a 113 first half and had, I think, a five-minute lead or so at that point and then crashed really hard with a 126 final half to finish third in a 240. So... He's got he's got some revenge to seek with this course, at least. He also has one of the most important characteristics, which I'm sure you and James are going to be talking about in a little bit, and that's to have some healthy respect for this course. <laughs> he does. Uh, he has definitely <laughs> taken it in the teeth. Uh, so hopefully he's learned his lesson there. Yeah, and I root for Jared to get to redemption. I remember seeing him at mile 10 in 2013 thinking, because it was a warm day and he had sweat all over him, and he had a massive lead at that point. I thought, there is just no way. He's going to blow up. I just hope he can hold on. And we ended up looking it up today. He lost, what, 15 minutes in the last six miles or so? Five minutes up on uh, the eventual winner. Five minutes up on the eventual winner at 20 miles and lost 10 minutes at the end of the race <laughs> so. in 10K. That is a 15-minute flip. Uh, that is definitely not the race plan that, that I believe the two of you will be discussing today. But <laughs> right. to Jared, we can say that to him. He's a friend. Um, he's a colleague. He's somebody who we really love and respect. So no, no, we're not, we're not bashing him. We're no. just, we're just, we're just telling truth. And so. I'm sure he won't make those same mistakes. I'm sure he will this time because it will run a smarter race. And so that's the perfect transition to talk about a smart race plan, right? James, let's bring you into this conversation. So James Dodds is one of our coaches. He coaches a half marathon and marathon group on Wednesday nights at Rogue Running. He's been an athlete of ours for a long time, has worked for us on the retail side of our business, and has coached for a long time now as well. We call him the Reverend James Dodds around here because he tends to, he likes to preach. And so we couldn't think of anybody better to preach on this topic, which is how to kill the Austin half and full. Welcome, James. Yeah, thank you. And Steve calls this place the Church of the Long Run, so Reverend <laughs> is fitting. It's appropriate. I, I think of myself as more like a deacon in Steve's church, but I'll take Reverend. <laughs> I'm just too infrequent to be a Reverend, I think. I'm a little Seems. bit mercurial. You know, I'm supposed to not... You're, a Reverend is supposed to be a really high... Uh, someone who everyone has not only respect for, but maybe would view as a, as a, a shining light. And I'm not so <laughs> sure I, I fit exactly all those characteristics, but I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> So anyway, welcome, James. James, as we talk through this topic, I'll be covering more of the pace elements, sort of the tactical strategy elements and how you should think about this course as you break it down into sections. And then he'll be covering the mental aspects. So we're going to be going back and forth, talking through the course in sections and then talking through both the pace strategy for each section and then how you should think about it from a mental standpoint. So that's how this will flow. The other thing I'll say is that we'll be talking about both the half and the full. The half we break down into four sections, so we'll cover that you know, in the first four sections, and they're sort of grouped in the same first four sections, and then the marathon has two additional sections over the last half. So that's how we'll break it down. So here we go, James. I'm, I'm excited. excited about this. Okay, so I'll start us off. 
the first thing I want to do is set the stage a little bit because you know, we talk about we talked a little bit about visual visualization on on our prior podcast on mental training and we're big believers in visualization so we're going to go through a little bit of a visualization exercise so I want you to imagine if you're listening waking up on marathon morning whether it's Austin or maybe another marathon you've done but waking up on marathon morning maybe after three to four hours of off and on sleep because you never sleep that well that first marathon but you wake up with butterflies in your stomach you're a little bit tired maybe cranky because you haven't slept that well you probably woke up before your alarm even because you were constantly checking it making sure you didn't oversleep but you wake up that morning the nerves are already going you hurriedly get dressed you've got your bib laid out for, and, and, and gear laid out from the night before so you're dressing you're going through the process of getting breakfast maybe coffee trying to get a couple bathroom stops in before you have to leave the house and then you're driving to the start again nerves building your your thoughts are are swimming in your head you're maybe starting to worry maybe having doubts about whether or not you slept enough whether or not you ate the right stuff whether or not you're hydrated enough whether or not your training has been enough so you're starting to have doubts as you drive there then you get to the starting line after dealing with parking all of those things and in Austin because the start line is on Congress Avenue you're on probably the most iconic street in the entire city with the Capitol at your back the finish line in front of you the buzz of people all around you the announcer yelling missives about you know getting ready for the race and grabbing you know port of your last minute porty potty stop or maybe finding your gear check so you're going through all those things and you're excited you're nervous your energy is is building as you suddenly get surrounded by 12,000 other people that are about to start on the same journey and then the national anthem happens then the countdown begins and the gun goes off and at some point you're standing there behind the line waiting to move through the crowds to the line yourself and in that moment I want you to think about in your mind's eye that you have a decision to make and that decision happens now but you also have to reaffirm that decision on the starting line amidst all the chaos that I just described and your decision that you need to commit to now and recommit to on the starting line is that you're going to run a smart race. A lot of people get to that starting line with a plan and they throw that plan out the window because of the chaos of the moment. And then as a result, they have a disastrous race. But in Austin, this course is unforgiving. And if you make that mistake, there will be, there will be <laughs> punishment and pain at the end. So you need to make the decision now and then on the start line that you're going to run a smart race you're going to follow the plan we described whether it sounds intuitive you, to you or not and you're going to run a smart race because if you don't you will be suffering mightily and the second half of your race will be like jared's second half of the race kick them when they're up <laughs> kick them when they're down kick them when they're up <laughs> kick them all around so austin this course because it's rolling because it's challenging it has a lot of what i call booby traps you have to be really smart, and if you're not smart, you'll pay for it. So again, as I said, you divide this course into six sections for the marathon, four for the half. The first one, I, I title the warm-up. It's the first three and a half miles of the race. You're on Congress. You had due south on Congress to 71, and you climb about 250 feet in those initial three and a half miles. And 
a lot of people don't realize because it's the beginning of the race that you're climbing so much. So a lot of people think of exposition and infield for those that know Austin as the most challenging portions of the race. Well, you actually gain more feet per mile in the first three and a half miles than you do in any other part of the race. So it's not to be overlooked. And the most important thing is that you start slow. You treat those first three and a half miles as a warm up, as you're opening miles to find a rhythm. You don't want to fight the hills. You don't want to burn energy on those initial climbs. You want to start smooth and progress down towards your marathon effort. I recommend for the marathon that you start out about 45 to 60 seconds slower than your target marathon pace. And over those first three miles, you work down to a pace that's 15 to 20 seconds slower than your marathon pace. Again, you're still climbing, so you don't want to hit marathon pace in these opening miles. For the half, I recommend you start 20 to 20 to 30 seconds slower than your target pace and work down to 5 to 10 seconds slower over those first three miles. Chris, I want to make sure that people heard you. Will you please repeat how many seconds yes. per mile because you kind of glossed over them. Yes, I repeat. Tell them again yes, exactly how much they need to go slower per mile. Marathoners start 45 to 60 seconds slower per mile than your target pace work down to 15 to 20 seconds slower per mile half marathoners 20 to 30 in the opening mile slower than target pace working down to five to 10 seconds slower. Now remember that this is the start of a marathon. We just described the nerves you'll have. We'll just describe all the people around you. Your all of the indicators in your brain and in your body that tell you what your pace is are going to be off. You're going to think you're going slower than you actually are. So it's important also to get out slow, what you think is slow, and then even, and then slow down even from that. And I always say, if people aren't passing you in these opening miles, then you're doing something wrong because you're letting those people pass you knowing that you'll catch them at the end. So start slow and then slow down, work <laughs> down from a minute slower for the marathon towards your target pace and then 20 seconds slower for the half. The other thing I want to talk about in this opening section is pace groups. We mentioned this in episode five that we discussed on marathon race planning. Do not, I repeat, do not start with your pace, your target pace group. Those pacers in Austin are some of the best in the land. I think I counted last year between them. They have over 500 <laughs> marathons between them. James is one of those pacers. They're, they're instructed to run an even split race. This is not an even split course. In fact, no two miles in this course are really the same. So if you run an even split race, you should only do that if you're prepared to, much, to run much faster. So don't start with your pacer because they're running even splits. Now, you can use pacers as a reference tool. I recommend starting you know, at least two pace groups, maybe even more depending on where you are in the field back to make sure you're starting slow enough use them as a reference point to get started slow enough but don't plan to run with them the whole race and really you shouldn't be approaching your target pace group until very late in the race and we'll talk about that as we go through it so that's the opening three miles 250 foot climb up con or down congress depending on how you look at it but you're climbing congress to 71 start slow and then slow down now as you do that, James, 
it's important to be in the right mental framework. So tell us how they should get their mind right in this opening section. Yeah, I will definitely. And um, I also want to back up and give a little bit of a disclaimer in that um, I feel like each one of these mindsets that I'm going to talk about today through each section is similar to a hat that I think we can all wear. You take it on, you take it off and put on a new hat. Um, we do that in our roles at work, etc. And so I think any of these applied, um, you know, for a whole race strategy won't work out very effectively. Um, but in this first section, both on the starting line and in this first section, um, I constantly tell myself to get into the mind space or the headspace of a Tibetan monk. <laughs> and most people don't like that or want to trust that um, for a lot of reasons, as you mentioned earlier. Um, but I think most people are amped up. They've got their adrenaline going. They've trained for six months. They want to put on their warrior mask. They want to put on their war paint. They want to come out. I'm picturing Braveheart with his arms spread open and he's got his sword in hand and I'm thinking of battle cries and all of that. And, and really, after about five or six marathons, um, I started to realize that's not how you start a marathon, period, especially Austin, but any marathon. Um, and so I constantly focus on my breathing and I try to calm down. And so the headspace I try to be in is literally, I'll repeat to myself, remain as calm as a Tibetan monk. And there's kind of three different areas, I think, that, that or three little temptations that, that I can at least think of in my own experience and that I've seen my uh, athletes be tempted by. Um, number one is worry. I've seen people ruminate. Uh, I've even been on the starting line counting my goo. I knew how many I had the night before. I had them in my hand, um, and yet I'm counting them again and again and again, and it's such a complete waste of energy. Um, I read Run to Win by Meb, and I'm going to totally botch this story, but I remember him telling a story uh, or in one of the chapters, he was talking about how fit he was and he was picked as a favorite for a race and he's flying out there and he remembers seeing his knuckles turning white on the plane because he was so amped up and so drained. And literally the, the, the takeaway was that um, he stressed himself out before the race even began and in some way lost it. I don't remember the performance. I know that it wasn't well or what he expected. And I just don't want to see anybody fall prey to that. I really want them to just focus on their breathing and be as calm as a Tibetan monk. Um, Are you referencing any specific Tibetan monk? Yeah, I'll, I'll reference one in, in just a second. Okay. I cannot well, well, pronounce well, his name. Oh, um, it's, it's Sepyong Mipom. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'll let you say it, and I'll just <laughs> quote him. Um, <laughs> there's a there's another temptation, I think, and um, that's weaving through runners. I mean, everybody knows that you should line up in appropriate order. You know what your pace is. You know where you should line up according to that pace. But every race has that guy there. And he's going to start walking by like 0.75 miles. And you're going to think to yourself, why is this guy in my way? You're going to start wasting useless energy on your anger towards this guy. And all I want you to think when you see that guy or whoever's bumping you because you're following Chris's plan, other people are running faster, uh, you're getting angry about it, calm down, relax, focus on your breathing, and literally picture a Tibetan monk, whatever that <laughs> looks like in the back of your mind. Um, I truly have had seasons long that were that were all just about this, and I think the experienced runners can relate to that. They, they have year-long seasons where they just focus on this alone, and I truly think there can be a peace found in running. So if I were to close off this section, I really do want to quote my favorite Tibetan monk. Steve, you want to say the name again? His name is Sakyong Mi Pham. He wrote the book Running with the Mind of Meditation. His, he was the, he's the son of 
Chungpa Trogpa, who is uh, one of my personal heroes. Uh, I read this book. It's a phenomenal book. Highly I, recommended. I love it. Yeah, I'm reading it right now just for like life application. I think it might actually be best for that because I think it's running applications other than the g- wonderful quote you're about to quote. Uh, could be a bit dubious. But anyway, it is great for life life lessons. Yeah, it's totally the headspace I'm in right now. But for at least this first section of the course, I want you guys to be there. And, and he says this. My meditation teacher taught me that with aggression, you may accomplish some things, but with gentleness, you can accomplish all things. Gentleness is like water. It will eventually reach its goal. Aggression is like fire. It's quick and it's gone. To be gentle is to understand that life is a journey deserving content attentiveness. Therefore, it is gentleness that allows us to finish a marathon, not putting pressure on ourselves to immediately think about the next one. Gentleness is just doing it in such a way that we can do it again and again. And he's applying that to marathons in general, but I think we should think about it from mile to mile on that day. I want to ask you one question, James, because I get to be the devil's advocate here. Um, Talk a little bit just quickly about gentleness in the way that most Western people think of in the context of of this quote. Uh, Many people think of gentleness in our worldview as sort of being about being soft. Um, I think that there's something a little bit different about a different sort of view of gentleness that he's discussing. You want to talk a little bit about that? So people are prepared in those early sections of the race for um, not a gooey soft experience, but maybe something else? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in some ways it applies as far as the race is concerned. Like Chris said, um, just a smart plan. Like you're putting this cap on not because you want to be weak and soft for the sake of being weak and soft, but because you respect the course, you respect the distance itself. Again, this, this concept would apply whether I was running Austin or not. If I was on the flat Chicago course, which I'll tell you about in just a second, um, this concept would still apply. And I even had a conversation this morning. It's funny, you brought up just our current culture. Um, I've often experienced in my own life, I think it's okay for me to say that my friends would describe me as kind. And I think it's interesting that a lot of people will often mistake kindness for weakness. Um, but I think there's a strength that has to be there first in order to apply kindness on a consistent basis and the same here there's got to be a strength a maturity and understanding my first three marathons i did not start off with the mind of a tibetan monk (laughs) my first three marathons were a disaster and i'll tell you more about them eventually um but yeah there's a strength there's an understanding there's a maturity even water itself can crush and kill anyone Um, But I like that he used that quote of water, that it flows and it eventually reaches its destination because that's someone having a mindset of, I know what I want in the end, so I need to do X, Y, and Z at the beginning in order to get there. It's also about having an intention. As you say, you know what the outcome, you you know the outcome you want. And so you're having the uh, intention, as I said, to make the decision to follow the plan and in order to follow that appropriately, you need to have the right mindset to be gentle, to be relaxed like a Tibetan monk in this opening section. And as I said, start slow and then slow down and don't go with your target pacer. All right. So now we're going to move to sections two and three. I'll cover those and then James will jump in with your mental framework for these sections. So section two is miles three and a half to six. You take a right turn on 71 Service Road, then a right turn on South First in Austin, and then you basically head back the way you came. So you went 
up Congress, 250 feet, you come screaming back down south first, 250 feet over the course of just under three miles. And this is the part of the race where a lot of people like maybe Jared in 2013 lose it. It's tempting with the downhills on this section to get going too fast. And also it's tempting to run in a way that really damages your quads on the downhills where, where similar to early Boston racing, where you need those quads late in the race to finish strong. So this section is all about letting gravity do the work and not forcing the pace. In addition, not getting too fast, getting too over your skis on the pace. I recommend for this section going about five to 10 seconds faster than your target pace, which should feel like roughly marathon effort. But if you're doing it the right way, you'll get a little bit more time than that back because of gravity doing its thing. So the most important thing here is execute your race plan, transition from your slow start to finding your marathon effort, but do it in a way where you're not destroying your quads, you're not breaking, and you're being as relaxed as you can be as you go downhill towards the river on South First. So that's section two. Um, and again, for full and half, same thing applies. For the half, you've got a really challenging second half to the half. So you want to make sure that you're getting a little time back here, but you're not being too aggressive because it, you will pay for that on infield at the end. So that's section two, smooth and relaxed on the downhills. Five to ten seconds faster per mile one than second, your target. Chris, I want to ask you yep. one question since I get to be devil's advocate. I'm enjoying yep. this. This is awesome. Um, <clears throat> tell just a quickly right now at this juncture, since it's so important, even though this race has lots of sections that are, uh, the early parts are exactly the same, it really is a tale of two races. Um, will you highlight that between the half marathon and the marathon and the real difference between the finishes of both of those races just as a, as a sort of above view for people running the half? Because while you're giving them suggestions, I don't know that they anybody who hasn't run the Austin half has really no idea exactly what's getting ready to hit yeah. them later on. Yeah, so the second half of the half is basically running into town on infield, which is nonstop rollers, with a really challenging hill about mile 11 and a half, 12, before you wind your way to the finish again on Congress. So while the first half of the half is fairly tame. You have a massive hill on infield coming back into downtown, including rollers before that that'll beat you up. So it's a really tough finish, and you just need to make sure you're saving something for that final finish. And for the marathon, the tough, the the, the second half of the course is easier, but it's a marathon. <laughs> so you've got to save something for the challenging second half of a marathon. So in some ways, they have different finishes, but you have to have kind of the same approach, which is start conservatively and, and plan to finish strong at the end. So that's section two, downhill, but be careful not to destroy your quads. Be relaxed. Get to five to ten seconds faster than goal pace. Then you hit six to ten where you're going from Cesar Sabez in South First out to Hula Hut on Lake Austin Boulevard in the west of town. So that's six to ten miles. It's, a, it's the flattest, frankly, section of the course. You've got one climb on veterans, which is fairly short and not too bad at that point in the race. But this is the flattest, smoothest section of the course. So if you're going to begin to find your rhythm, this is the place to do it. So you want to, at this point, 
t- dial into your goal pace and try to lock into it and run these six to ten miles as closely as possible in, in pace right around that target pace of yours. The most important thing here is to be relaxed, find a rhythm, make the, that target marathon pace feel as easy as possible, and to avoid the temptation to push past that if you feel good, or to carry your fast pace from the downhills in section two into these miles, because that's also a pitfall I've seen others make where they kind of roll out the downhill and then they continue on that faster pace versus really trying to dial in around your target pace. So whether you're a full marathoner or a half marathoner, section three is all about dialing into target pace and making it feel as comfortable as possible coming off the downhills of section two. And some might say, James, you've kind of got to execute. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, Ex- execute's so, a great word. So let's let's turn it over to you. From a mental standpoint, how should people approach sections two and three? Yeah, I'm glad you used the word um, execute because for me, my mantra here, literally for myself, even as a pacer, um, in my in my marathons when I'm racing myself and as a pacer, it's still the same. Um, I'm all business. And what that means to me is I'm dialed into my watch actually. I love being that Zen rhythm runner who can get rid of the technology and just go be a little human on planet Earth, um, but not here. Because you mentioned even at the very beginning, um, we're going to feel so good. We're so trained up. um, It's going to be hard to actually run as slow as your marathon goal pace. And so what I try to do is I try to teach my body that rhythm or that specific pace and get dialed in. So things that come to mind are aim small, miss small. Um, If your plan based on the math has someone running a 930 pace, I would say, hey, they should try to hit anywhere from 929 to 931. And I'm not kidding. I do that to myself. I pace the 10 minute group and I'm targeting 959 to 1001 when I'm in that section. And normally I would not recommend this as a great way to train. But in this section, I've got my Garmin and I'm looking at it almost every two to three minutes to make sure I'm as all business as I can be. And the visual visualizations I get, I like to tell stories, so I want to I want to tell a couple in here. Is one I picture that perfect friend, and everyone has that quote perfect friend in mind. Um, it's that guy or gal who it seems like their hair is always perfectly in place. They show up to work on time. They never leave a minute early. It seems like everything they do goes off without a hitch. They appear to go to bed on time. They get up early. They're just that perfect person, right? I cannot be that person every single day. But just for these few miles, I think it's really important that I put on that cap and I try to be because it's going to set a tone for the rest of the race. It's preserving some of that energy. So again, I dial in. I'm I'm all business. And I want to share one last story here. Um, I actually think of my high school algebra teacher. His name was Mr. Flesner. And I remember every time we walked through his doorway, there was a sign that said procedure, procedure, procedure. And he'd actually start his lessons off with procedure, procedure, procedure. And it didn't matter how complex an equation was. If I came to him for help and I said, hey, I didn't get the right answer here. He would literally look back at me and say, well, did you follow my procedure? And in some ways, I hate the memory, but I love it because I need it through sections like this. It's going back to your plan. Like literally, if someone comes up to you after this race and says, it all came apart. I don't know what happened. I logged every mile I was supposed to. Um, 
I think one of the first questions you should ask them literally is, did you follow my plan? Like, were you dialed in in this section or did you abandon it? And that's so important because I learned it in the hardest way when I was probably most vulnerable and most excited as a runner. Um, in my second year of training here at Rogue, I was losing considerable amount, a considerable amount of weight. I was getting super fit. It was the first time I had ever crested into a 50-mile week. That seemed like something only the crazy, you know, elite athletes would do. And this was back in 2010. I was geared up for the Chicago Marathon, 10-10-10. And um, my PR at the time was a 441. And having lost all the weight, trained so hard, I was in 340 shape. So all I wanted was a 340 run. A three forty one sixty minute PR. I I literally I That's I huge, wrote baby. I wrote the blog out in my head before I ever got on the plane. <laughs> I was gonna show the words. world. Yeah. I was gonna show the world I that made I made that mistake too. Yeah, it's the worst. Um, but I tell you what, I I was feeling great and I started off at about eight thirty pace. Um, and I saw a guy just ahead of me at about mile three. And he looked so smooth and so calm and so relaxed. There was no effort going on. And I was 26 at the time, and I, I sized him up, and my guess was that he was closer to 56. And I thought, hey, sheer youth. <laughs> Biology's on my side. I've got this guy. And so I settled in behind him, and we were running comfortably together. I don't even know if he ever knew I was there. Um, but there was only one problem. The back of his shirt actually had 330 on it. <laughs> and I was in shape for 340. All I needed was that one-hour PR. And I got a little greedy because it seemed right in the moment. It felt right in the moment. I was literally relaxed. I, I didn't have the words, be as calm as a Tibetan monk or be dialed in, but I felt all those good things. And so I was rolling along with this guy, and I owe him a thank you today still because that man paced me to my 18-mile PR. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever run a 30K that fast. Um, <laughs> But we know that that day I wasn't running a 30K. I was supposed to run a marathon. And the last eight miles were the worst walk-jog that I've ever seen in my life. Everything, the, I totally came off the rails. Terrible experience. If there's any piece of advice that I can give to anyone is be all business through this section. Teach the legs the rhythm they need to and stick to the plan. You know, the leg, it's funny, it's funny to think about this, James, but you're at the end of the day we always talk about not being a slave to the watch. We've done that. We've as coaches, we've all said, don't be a slave to the watch. But yet on this section, be we're slave. being a slave to the watch. I would reframe it because I love to reframe. Everybody that knows me knows you just Bring change it. the words a little bit. I would say you, you gotta be a slave to the plan, which is exactly what you're saying. It's super cool. I love, I love the way you brought that around and shared your personal, your personal story there. It's, it, it's definitely appropriate in this case, in this part of the race. It's also important to note that making that mistake in Chicago is one thing on a flat course. <laughs> yeah. Making that mistake in Austin on this course <laughs> is infinitely worse. So it would have been a 10 mile walk. Yeah, it would have been <laughs> at, at a slower one at that. So execute the plan through this section, find your rhythm. All right. Now we go to section four and this is where, this is the last section of the half and the fourth section of the marathon. So this is where we'll kind of have two different approaches depending on the distance that you're running. So for the half, we'll start there. You run from basically 10 to 13.1 along infield. And as I just described to Steve earlier, it's a rolling course. You have a pretty good climb around mile 12. Then you have a few final turns into downtown where you finish 
on Congress again, just south of the Capitol. And so this last section, these last 3.1 for a half are really tough. You've got rolling hills and then a big climb at 12. But if you've done your job as a half marathoner and you've started conservatively, you only have three, three miles to go. So you can start to push and fight the climbs a little bit put on that hat of being the warrior that is the opposite of the monk we described and really if you're doing everything right you should be able to run i think five to 15 seconds faster per mile than your target pace in this section now granted you're going to have moments as you climb some of those hills where you're slower than that certainly but if you're really aggressive on the downhills particularly then you can still get some time back in these final three miles so for the half marathoners your mission in this section is to go and fight and take those hills on, channel everything you've done in training, and finish strong. The one thing I would note for the half marathoners is that the finish to the marathon now is a little bit twisty-turny in that final mile. So I would encourage you to take a look at that course map, memorize it a little bit, because you're probably going to sense the finish line before you're able to see it, because you've got to several turns in that final mile so just be ready for that so that you don't get psyched out by thinking the finish line is around the corner when it's not so half marathoners go marathoners in this section your plan is the opposite more or less this is all about conserving energy you have rolling hills on infield and rolling hills on exposition to the halfway point at mopac and if you're pressing here, then again, you're making mistakes like we talked about earlier. So I need you to conserve energy on the uphills. People should be passing you as you climb these hills. You should be smiling as they do it, knowing that you'll catch them at the end. Conserve energy. Don't, I always tell my athletes, don't fight the hills. Let them slow you down. Don't worry too much about what your watch says at this point. It's really all about conserving energy, feeling comfortable through this section, and saving something for the last half in the race if you're doing everything right then you're going to be somewhere between 10 and 20 seconds slower per mile than your target pace in this section but it might even be slower it might be 30 seconds might be 40 seconds it doesn't really matter those sections every mile that you run slower than target pace within that range you should celebrate in this section because you've done your job you've executed the plan and you've saved energy for the last two sections where you're going to need it so this one, James, is all about conserving energy. What would you tell them from a mental standpoint? Um, so the mindset I like to get in in this section, and I've said it to a number of athletes, um, is enjoy the journey. So most people, when they're talking about a marathon or daydreaming of their next marathon, all they're going to think about is the wall. I can still remember, Steve, your original speech, original for me, um, because it was my first year running Austin. It was back in 08 or 09. Um, prepare to suffer that what you broke it up into four sections and the fourth was prepare to suffer and what's funny is that's the only thing I ever think about when I'm thinking about marathoning and there's a danger also in that if I only think about preparing to suffer because this will be my 20th marathon um, it will be my eighth time running Austin and it'll be my sixth time pacing and I pace the 425 group so I actually know that I'm only gonna suffer on that day for about 45 minutes which means I've got three hours and 45 minutes that day <laughs> that I could truly enjoy even if the wills come off those 18 miles in Chicago they were fun they were great 
Now, sure, there was pain and suffering, and we'll talk about that later, but I don't want people to get ahead of themselves. My, my biggest aim here mentally is to compartmentalize each section of the race. Get your win in that section and then tuck it away and put it behind you. That way, no matter what happens at the end, you can't just like throw out the baby with the bathwater and say it was all a wash if I get it right on, on the nose or it was all success. If uh, I mean, I'm sorry, it's all a wash uh, if I don't hit it right on the nose and it's all success if I hit it on the nose. There's, there's a lot that goes into this. There's a lot of meaning. There's a lot of joy. People's lives are changed. People turn their lives around, etc. Um, we could probably think of dozens of examples, but in this section, I try to invite a sense of play. I check my Garmin maybe when it beeps just to double check, but since I had already set that tone in my legs, I can trust my legs. I'm always going to look for that cute little kid that's like age four or five and they've got their hand out and that's when I want to give them a high five. I think it's also a time to strike up conversation. Um, I'm torn on this one. Some people don't like to talk. That's wasted energy. I get it. Um, So if you don't want to talk to anyone, that's fine. If you are a chatty Kathy like myself, then just say, hey, where are you from? You know, have you run Austin before? It can be simple. But this is your chance to have a memory on that day. Um, Take in the beauty of Austin. Um, We're alive and well in Austin, Texas. We're running the streets of downtown. You can't run down the middle of Congress. You can't run down the middle of all these streets except for 5 a.m. on Saturday mornings with Rogue (laughs) or during this time on race day. And so I hope people are able to enjoy it. Um, As I mentioned earlier, I like stories. So, uh, Chris, you actually shared this one with me. But um, Gabriel Trinidad, one of our fellow Rogues, I think in 2014 ran Boston. And that year he took a camera with him. And he spent the entire time asking people why they run or how they got to Boston. And he remembers that as one of the most meaningful races he's ever participated in. And so if you're going for a goal time that day, then obviously you're not going to slow down, take photos, ask people questions, etc. This is one of many that Gabriel runs. And so he had a whole meaningful race. But in this section, I just want people to go into that mindset of this can be special. This can be fun. This can be enjoyable. And I'll let the suffering happen when the suffering happens. And that that also applies to life. And I won't go off on a sermon, but there's going to be hard, frustrating obstacles that we face in life. I think when we got to have hard talks with people, we have hard talks with people. But if you know me, I don't like to live there. I like to enjoy it as much as I possibly can. I heard a pastor once say that um, life's like a garden and every garden has a compost pile. Don't make your home by the, the compost pile. So don't make your home as you go into this race all about the pain and suffering don't be a fool and think it's never going to come but don't camp out there enjoy the journey relax through here it can be fun an expo i think is particularly fun even if challenging because you have a lot of people coming out of their houses it's closer to the neighborhoods there in Terrytown, so you do get more of a neighborhood feel through this section which can be a lot of fun if you soak it in so Enjoy the journey in spite of the rolling hills. (laughs) All right. So that's section four. Now we switch to section five and six or five for the marathon. For five, it's basically the halfway point through about mile 19. I call this section the not so great northern because it famously has the great northern section there at the top half of this section around mile 18. That is notoriously a mental challenge for most people because it's long, it's slightly uphill, and it's and it's the point in the race where you start to question yourself maybe a little bit. But this section is 
as you head north is interesting because it's, a, it's actually a false flat. You still climb about 150 feet over the course of about six miles. So you're climbing a little bit each mile and you'll feel that. But at the same time, it's relatively smooth in the climbing. So all the terrain looks the same. So you can find a rhythm. And at this point in the race, if you've done your job, you should find a rhythm that's close to your target pace for the marathon. Again, the terrain is similar, slight falls flat, and you should be plus or minus, I say five seconds within range of your goal pace. And it's all about, just like we talked about in section three, finding that rhythm, staying focused on the plan, and continuing to be patient. Because you might at some point in this section say, hey, I feel good. I should pick it up, you know, at mile 16 or something like that. If that's you, remind yourself of the decision you made at the start of the race to run a smart plan and don't do it. You shouldn't pick it up until the last section of this course, which we'll talk about in a section in a, in a second. But stay smooth, find a rhythm, and learn to deal with or prepare to deal with the mental madness that comes on Great Northern and in some of these other sections where you feel like you're constantly still climbing. You might have a headwind because some days that happens. And there are also parts of that section that are a little bit lonely, maybe less, less crowds and so forth. And so you start to question yourself a little bit and doubt whether or not you can do it. So be prepared to deal with those mental demons. And James, how should they do that? So... What I like to think here, and this is going to be the hardest one for me to talk about, uh, well, not hard to talk about, but it's do what you said you would do. Um, and I'm at that stage in life where I have to constantly repeat that to myself. But the reason why I'm going with this mantra, do what you said you would do, is because I literally think that if you've had a decent season, you don't have to have a great season. If, you, if you've had a decent season and you have followed the plan pretty well, then there is absolutely no reason why the wheels should come off before mile 20 if you're a marathoner. And there's no reason why the wheels should come off before mile 10 if you're a half marathoner. If they do, that means you just went out way too fast. Or if there's an injury, that's different. Or if there was a weather um, issue, then yeah, I get that. But that goes into planning. You know what the weather's going to be the night before. And so anybody that actually lays out the plan that matches with the season that they've trained for, anything anything they feel in this section that's going to make them want to slow down or want to raise the white flag and quit, that's just discomfort. That's not the real pain yet. That's not the real suffering. That's not the wall that we talk about in the marathon. Showing up to mile 19 for me or mile 20 for me in a marathon is just a matter of responsibility. I go into a mindset where I flip on that hat and I treat myself like an adult and I say, do what you said you would do. It's that simple. It's okay if I get swallowed up by the marathon at mile 23 or 24. We'll speak to that in a second. But I don't ever want to come through this section off pace because it is a controllable. If you've done your long runs, you've gone through the training, you came out with a half-decent plan then you should be able to show up through this section on time. And anyone who doesn't, then I think that that's just quitting. You raise the white flag way too soon. And honestly, there's no rest or refuge in quitting. There really isn't. This is, this is something that's coming to me as I go on morning jogs right now. Um, I do an easy four-mile loop in the mornings. Um, there's uh, Getting home 
having only done three miles or stopping and walking, I don't feel better if I walk. And getting home doesn't save me any time. There, there, there's no benefit to it. It's just simply a mental discomfort. And you talked about it out at Great Northern. You're going to get there mentally. You're just going to be bored. You're no longer at the beginning. So it's not fun and exciting and neat. And you're not taking selfies with people. And you're not close to the end. You're not even heading down Duval yet. And so it feels like the end's so far away. So all you literally have to face is a few thoughts. And so I want to push people into a dutiful mindset through this section, a responsible mindset, and simply treat yourself like an adult and say, hey, if I'm going to get there, if Chris's time said I'm going to be here in three hours and 30 minutes, then you need to be be there in three hours and 30 minutes. I'm reading a book called um, Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink. He is a retired Navy SEAL, and the dude's scary. I won't even say that I aspire to be Jocko. I just read Jocko, (laughs) so a little bit of his outlook rubs off on me. And he tells a story about his SIL team when they had to do a hostage rescue in Ramadi. They had to go into a building that only had one door, both to enter through and exit. And the danger with a hostage rescue like this is that enemy eyes that are watching the door can plan a bomb outside of it when they see U.S. military go in. And when they start to come out with the hostage, they can explode it and kill everyone in that platoon and the hostage. These guys were aware of it. They go in, they perform the hostage rescue, and then they look towards the door and they identify the bomb. Plan over? (laughs) Absolutely not. These dudes always came to battle with a sledgehammer, and they beat down a cement wall and took a side route out that building. And so when Navy SEALs go in to perform a mission, they don't really ask themselves how they feel. They ask themselves, what's the mission? What do I need to accomplish? And then they find a way to accomplish it. They get the hostage. They get them back on time. They do what they said they would do. Now, I can't be a Navy SEAL. I'm not asking anyone to be a Navy SEAL. But in this section, if there's a little discomfort that presents itself or a little boredom or you get fidgety, don't let that be the reason why you raise the white flag. Do what you said you would do and get to the next section. But James, this part of the course fucks with you. I mean, Chris just described it. It literally is rising and rising and rising and rising. Um, Many of the people that, using the analogy you just used and the story you just used about the Navy SEALs, I mean, it's not just one bomb. To them, they think it's multiple bombs on every corner. How does do what you said you would do uh, how much of this that what you're discussing is mental and how much of this is physical? Uh, you alluded to it a little bit, but I'm, I'm curious where you would where you stand with that. Well, it's largely mental, but then there is the physical component to it because there is a time associated with it. But so much of it's mental. You said that this area of the course will fuck with you. Well, the truth is life will fuck with you. And that you either have a perspective that in a value system that you want to carry through life or you don't. I think that people come into this race, have a goal time in mind, they've laid out a plan, they've trained for it, if they've been smart about the plan, then there's literally no room here for big error. What I'm not saying is I'm not saying if you followed Chris's plan, now go make up the time that he was banking for you. I'm not saying get off course in that sense and speed up and try to get back to some original time. I'm saying whatever time that he had with, with the math that he laid out, you show up to that section on, the, on that time, but carry that, that 
mind of responsibility. That's awesome stuff, man. Awesome stuff. <laughs> it's, impo- it's important to follow up on your last point, which is that if you make a mistake, which you might, you might go a little bit faster than a mile. It's important to have a short memory related to that and not worry about it. Put it behind you and execute the next mile on plan. Don't try to make up the time. Don't try to you know pick it up or slow it down too much relative to what you did before. Just simply run the next mile on plan. And if you keep doing that, then you'll get to mile 18 or 19 and you'll be where you should be. You shouldn't mess with the plan until the last section, <laughs> which we'll talk about now. So section six for the marathon. Can, can I jump in real quick? Go ahead. I, I mean, I, I love what you just said there. And there's in truth a psychology that comes into play. And that's that once you have 20 miles under your belt or 10 as a half marathon, now your brain actually wants to salvage everything. And so now it's now it's a matter of like when you get into those later sections, do I want to undo all that I just worked for and built for myself? But if you throw it away at mile 16 in the marathon or you throw it away at like mile 7 or 8 in a half marathon, then you, you don't have any real compelling reason to redeem that race. Like why, why redeem a race that you threw away at the halfway mark? But if you've gone through 20 miles, you don't want to undo that. And so you'll fight a little harder in that next section. And I don't want to get ahead of myself, but there's a psychology that enters when you go into that mindset that you just talked about of one mile at a time, execute, go to the next one, go to the next one. You're building up little wins that you don't want to undo in the final miles. And so let's go to the final miles. You get to the top of the course about mile 19, just past that. And then you head south to mile 26.2 for the marathoners. It's a net downhill of about 250 feet over the course of six or so miles. And at this point, it's time to start thinking about emptying the tank. Um, I split this section into two kind of mini subsections. There's 19 to 22 which is a fairly smooth downhill section where you can start to pick it up a little bit, five to 10 seconds per mile, test how you feel, begin to squeeze down a little bit. You get to a little climb on North on North loop at 22. After you get over that hump at 22, then you've got another four miles or so to the finish. And you should basically run those last four miles in progression. Again, it's that downhill. You have mostly, downhills on Duval as you go into the finish you do have a couple of little climbs to note one on 41st about mile 24 and then one at the very end on San Jack as you're finding your way to the finish but those shouldn't stop you from putting on the big boy pants and riding your road to glory as James said you've, if you've done the work to get to mile 19 or 20 on pace then you've got something to salvage and it's time to empty the tank and gradually run in progression to the end. Now, it's also important to note that there'll be two types of runners at this point in the race. There'll be those that ran like Jared did in 2013. Sorry, Jared, for picking on you again, who made mistakes early and will be crawling on these downhills, sad and crying that they can't take full advantage of them at this point in the race. And then there'll be others like hopefully everyone listening who made the decision to run a smart race, who got through 20 on plan and who have something left to take advantage of the favorable terrain at the end. So your job is to empty the tank, to leave it all out there. Now, as Steve often reminds people, don't do that too quickly. You don't want to suddenly at mile 20 drop 30 seconds a mile and begin 
crushing it because you might find that at 24 <laughs> you're in trouble. But begin to gradually empty the tank. I say roughly 5 to 10 seconds per mile faster than target pace from 19 to 22. And then work down to 20 to 30 seconds faster than your target pace for 22 to 26. And finish strong. Leave nothing out there. You don't want to finish with regrets that maybe you could have done X, Y, Z. Recently we had the Houston Marathon and... One of my athletes finished in a very solid, respectable PR of about nine minutes with a Boston qualifier by 35 seconds. She ran a negative split, ran a really solid race plan, executed perfectly all the way through about 20 miles. And then in this section, because of the heat of the day, she couldn't quite ring out everything she wanted. So she finished angry and pissed off. And tears, <laughs> and, as and, I remember and in it. tears, as Steve <laughs> saw. So she was disappointed that maybe, just maybe, she didn't give everything she had to the finish to get a little bit more cushion for her Boston registration. You don't want to be that runner with regrets. You want to be that runner that has done everything you can to empty the tank to the finish. I will also give you one more story. I had another athlete who ran Austin. This was a couple years ago. It was a particularly warm day. He had a certain goal in mind, and he was on track for that goal through mile 25. I saw him just before that at mile 24. He looked like a ghost. He was white, a little bit ashen. He was looking forward like he didn't know where he was, but he was just focused on moving his feet. And But he was setting the paces. He was following the plan. At mile 25, he got to mile 25. He collapsed on the side of the road. And briefly passed out before medical got to him and ultimately made him walk off the course because they took him to the med tent. But he left it all out there. (laughs) And to this day, I talked to him about that because I don't know that I've ever seen anyone give so much that they literally passed out with a mile to go. And you don't want to necessarily do that. But that's the sentiment you want to follow, which is you want to leave it all out there at the end, just like my friend did who who didn't quite get there but but definitely left everything out on the course so see there is no such thing as the central governor but anyway <laughs> that's, that's, right. a, that's for another exactly. topic for another day so there you <laughs> go mile 19 to 26 i call it the road for glory how should they be thinking about this one james they got to know their why and you guys touched on this when you were talking about the elite field and sorry i i didn't remember the guy's name but one of the guys is running for his son and you were talking about that extra motivation that he's going to have because he has this um compelling reason for why he runs and there's a lot of truth to that and in this section when I say know your why um, I want people to I love the external uh, motivating factors like some people run for charities etc and and I totally admire that but I think that um, the deeper in touch with your personal why that you can get before this race the better chance you have of overcoming these sections um I've heard Steve talk about these before, even not even just with running. When my my first interview with Rogue, Steve wanted to meet me at um, Progress Coffee when we were over on the east side. And he sat down and his first question is, why are you here? I mean, (laughs) why are you here on earth? (laughs) (laughs) Existential question. Yeah. And I was like, wait, is this a trick? Like, I I didn't prepare for this. Um, But he's always touching on these concepts of why are you here? Why are you on this earth? Why are you on this planet? That came up, I think, last year, and I always love it. Um, And I think what he's touching on and what he's hitting on is, like, literally deep down, what are you trying to prove? 
Why are you here? Why are you running this marathon? And we all have our reason. Um, I know a lot of athletes from amateurs to professionals, and I know that when they go after marathons and half marathons, there's something inspiring about them, and there is something, um, you know, encouraging to be around. They're all lion hearts. They're putting themselves out there, and they're tackling distances that other people think are overwhelming or it may be their bucket list so while that's on one hand inspiring I also know the community of runners so well that we've all got our own insecurities we've all got our reason deep down why we run and maybe we're trying to prove something to the world maybe we're trying to prove something um, to our friends and family or maybe trying we're trying to prove something to ourselves um Last week, or actually two weeks ago now, Jordan and I were watching a Netflix, and we found Eddie Strongman, hmm. and it's about the um, powerlifter in the UK, and Eddie is actually the world record holder in the deadlift. He can deadlift. This dude can deadlift 1,102 pounds. Holy shit. <laughs> I mean, it's just insane. But as one of his friends was talking about him and... Uh, and they would, they would cut in and out where they would do interviews about Eddie and then interviews with Eddie. And they were cutting back to this friend, and he said, there's one thing that you got to know about Eddie. Eddie, like all great athletes, and that's the part that like jumped all out of the screen at me, and I think it's because I was thinking about this speech and thinking about what am I going to say in the, hey, you know, know your why. He said, like all great athletes, have Eddie has this big gaping hole that he's trying to fill. And I think that was the first time, I guess, I heard professionals talk about it and apply it to all great athletes. I kind of had that impression that we're all trying to prove something, that we all have a big gaping hole. I know all about my big gaping hole. But this is when I, I heard it affirmed in a, in a documentary about a professional athlete. And so I think the homework for everybody before race day is to get in touch with that why. And I want them to go to that dark place. I want them to go to the place that they're afraid to go, the thing that makes them feel vulnerable and afraid. Because I think when you can conquer those kinds of fears, there's another layer of strength that you have to overcome something like 26.2 miles. So James, but they are not going to be able to do that in this last section of the race if they haven't done it beforehand, right? Exactly. That's so what. Will you just talk a little bit about giving them a maybe just a really short primer on how to wrestle with that that angel? Yeah, how is hard. Um, I mean, there's there's simple examples like grab a couple of beers or a bottle of wine and grab that journal and pen and maybe write it out. Um, but I'm hoping that if there's any value um, from this, that they'll hear it now and they're probably thinking about that something as they listen and so maybe when the podcast is over they can just chew on it for another 20 30 minutes it doesn't have to be a long drawn out thing and it doesn't have to be something you're going to go seek counseling for now um but i think it <laughs> maybe needs, later maybe later <laughs> yeah the, the marathon is our counseling right <laughs> but but i think that you need to face it and you need to be open to it and you need to chew on it um, even if it's just for a few minutes after this podcast, um, because when you can look those fears or that big gaping hole in the eye, that's where the strength for these miles will come from. You're right. They can't process it on race day. 
they've got to think about it, face it, and then know that why and let that be their mantra in those those miles. And anybody struggling with some of that, you can go back to last week's episode and get a little bit of uh, starting. We've got an entire uh, series of episodes we're going to be doing on mental training that are right in this wheelhouse that you are just punching through right now. So, Yep, that's episode six. We also talked about it in episode five for marathon race planning. And taking that purpose and translating also into some mantras you can repeat in your head to remind yourself of that mission. And. And at the risk of maybe being cheesy, could I share share Please. like cheese away, story? brother? Cheese away. Is, so the reason why I'm almost nervous to share this, but I have to because it's speaking to me. And if I'm a 33 year old man and it's speaking to me, maybe someone else will get something from this. But I never read the Harry Potter series, um, but I finally started watching all the movies, and I'm on the seventh one, which is the final part. Um, and I'm in the there's two movies of the seventh, and I'm on the I just finished the first. And long story short. Harry's always going through these battles, and he's kind of like the unlikely hero. He, you know, he's never like Braveheart per se. He, someone's always coming to his rescue. And in this movie, I'm going to oversimplify it, so I'm going to make the Harry Potter fans mad at me, and then everyone who doesn't love Harry Potter is going to be <laughs> mad at me too, so everyone's mad at me. But let's say, to keep things simple, there is this magical necklace, and there's a magical sword that can destroy this necklace. And Harry's best friend, Ron is the one that's going to have to destroy this necklace. Now, when you open this necklace up, there's this big demon that protects it, and it doesn't want anyone to kill it, obviously. And so this demon, its defense mechanism is to actually cast upon you so you see clearly and vividly your worst fears. And I should have told you, but Ron is terribly afraid of spiders. So as soon as that necklace opens and he's got this the sword in his hand, millions of spiders start crawling his way and then an image of Harry who's his best friend and Hermione the girls he in, he's in love with are kissing and so this kid Ron is watching his boy kiss his girl <laughs> and spiders are crawling his way yeah that's St. John's dark night of the soul right there man that's a tough yeah nightmare. there's nothing worse than your boy <laughs> taking your girl but Ron has to stare that in the eye and still wield the sword as he stares at it and walks through it and then destroys the little magic necklace. So I know it's a kid's story. I know there's a risk of being cheesy there, but it's speaking to me. That's where you find your why is in that deep, deep, dark space that you're afraid to face. Sweetness. <laughs> I love it. See, we may lose you here in a few minutes as you have to go coach, but that's okay. We want to wrap this up with a couple things. One, we want to start with practicality. I know some people are listening to this and they're thinking, gosh, James and Chris, that sounds really, really theoretical, you know, maybe that would work. You know, it's a plan, but I don't know that it sounds like a logical plan, <laughs> even after we've been going off for an hour and 15 minutes. But I want to share with you a couple of things. One is that I've done this talk now for, I think, four years, maybe even five. And I've raced Austin myself several times. I'll be racing this year. I have strangers come up to me at races on the street I occasionally get emails from people thanking me for this talk because they ran the plan and executed and got the goal time that they were shooting for on this course so if you follow our plan you are following in the footsteps of a lot of people both random strangers I don't know and a lot of athletes I've coached myself that have done this plan and executed it well and then crushed their goal but I want to share 
before we close with some thoughts from James, two examples, two example athletes that these happen to both be athletes I've coached. Runner A that came into the race with a 3.30 target. She was trying to get a five-minute BQ buffer race. And then runner B, who was running a four for a 4.10 target, both ladies that were really strong in training and did everything I asked of them in training, they came into the race with the same plan. They may have even made the same decision to follow with the plan of the starting line, but they executed that plan very differently and had, as a result, two very different outcomes. Runner A, again targeting 3.30, she came through... Three miles, 40 seconds slower than planned. 13 miles, 50 seconds slower than planned, cumulatively. 20 miles, 1 minute and 10 seconds slower than planned. So she came through mile 20 and and was slower than she needed to be than what I had just given her for her plan by over a minute. Then there was the case of runner B, who was targeting a 4.10. She came through mile 3. Two minutes, 45 seconds, faster than planned. Started way too fast. By mile 13, she was five minutes, 45 seconds, faster than planned. So she took her mistakes of the opening miles and compounded them through 13. And before she even hit 20, as a result of starting too fast, the wheel started to come off. At 20, she was only, she went from 545 under plan at 13.1 to 144 under plan at mile 20 so she started to lose ground but was still ahead of her plan at mile 20 so you had the case of runner a a minute and 10 seconds faster than plan at mile 20 runner b who had started very differently he was a minute 45 seconds faster than plan at mile 20 and you can imagine where this is going in terms of outcomes runner a ended up progressing like a monster in that last section the road to glory she beat her goal by 16 seconds, ran 329.43 to get that faster than five-minute buffer for Boston. Runner B held it together, in my opinion, fairly well, but she ended up finishing 15 or five minutes and 39 seconds slower than her 4:10 plan. So she ran a 4:15.39. She gave back close to a minute per mile in those final miles because of poor execution on the first half. And so there you go. That's both an example of what happens when you execute the plan well and also what to do if you come through a little bit slow in the opening 20 miles. If you come through slow, celebrate that because that means you've saved everything for the end and you'll be like runner A. You'll be hunting, you'll be fishing, you'll be running down those runners that are coming back to you that made the mistakes of runner B in the opening miles. So there's real-life tangible examples for why you should follow what we're saying today. Make Again, make that decision on the starting line and then just go execute. Now, James, how would you close it out? So um, one, one thing I'm just going to say is as I heard you talk through it um, and give the example, I don't know why anyone wouldn't trust it. <laughs> um, I just think it's kind of crazy, especially a guy like me who – only thinks about the the mind and the the soul part of running i don't want to do the math for myself um you've laid it out for them so it's a little crazy if they don't follow it um but the number one thing to close with i think is have faith 
Um, I know that athletes have faith in their coach, especially here at Rogue. They're paying for it. They're, they're coming consistently. I know they trust in the program or else they wouldn't have stuck it out all season. I know that they have faith in their coach or else they wouldn't have come and asked questions and signed up for the group in the first place. Um, I think a lot of them will have faith in this, um, this plan if they're still on the podcast, obviously, you know, they're <laughs> buying into something. They would have left already. They better. They better. Um, some of them have faith in God above. Some of them have a, a spiritual or religious component that's going to that gonna help them. And that's all great. I'm not saying anything against any of that. That is great. But I think uh, what I want to drive home at this last section is have faith in yourself. It's so easy to look at other people and assume, yeah, this, this plan will work out for Chris because he's got all this experience. Or this plan's going to work out for Allison because she's an elite. Um, the story you shared with me about... Um, one year when you felt like some of your best running was behind you. Um, you were younger. You had a lot of spare time. You were able to slam down in a lot of marathons. You thought maybe your, your best days were behind you because now you got uh, three kids. You've, you're, you're running a small business. You're coaching other athletes. And you started to think that maybe the PRs were in the past. But instead of letting that thought materialize, you replaced it um, with another thought and you started saying why not me I've heard your athletes say it why not me I've stolen it and used it with some of my athletes and said hey start thinking this why not me and I think that year whenever you started saying hey why not me if it's going to work out for Allison why can't I improve why can't I develop I'm doing the work why can't this race plan work out for me and um, correct me if I'm wrong but you set your personal best in the 10k 10 mile half marathon and marathon that year right yep yeah. And so the, the biggest thing I'm trying to drive home here is have faith in yourself. Like give yourself an opportunity to consider, hey, maybe on race day, I don't know how it's going to go for other people, but I got a damn good feeling it's going to work out for me. Be audacious. Have that belief in yourself. Be open to it. Because as adults, we just memorize like how to prepare for the worst and always think that, I don't know, I don't know, my setbacks all, always show up and it works out for everybody else, but start thinking, why not me? Have faith in yourself. I love it. Have faith in the plan. Have faith in yourself. Meditate on what could go right <laughs> versus what could go wrong. Exactly. Which is what we often do. So that's, that's it. Have faith, execute our plan. We promise it will carry you well to the finish. And we certainly wish everybody the best of luck on Austin day. It's a great day for this city. And, you and I will both be out there running with them, so it'll be fun. With that, we'll wrap up Episode 8. We're a little bit long on time today, so no training tip. Check out our other episodes for training tips, but we do appreciate you joining us. Again, this is the Running Rogue Podcast. Check us out on roguerunning.com, on Facebook, forward slash Rogue Running, or you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at Rogue Running. On behalf of James and Steve and I, we'll, we'll uh, catch you next time.